0: Well, good morning on this Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week as we celebrate the kingship of Jesus. You know, Christians around the world celebrate Palm Sunday in different ways. Uh, In Belgium, kids go door-to-door on Palm Sunday and hand out palm branches to their neighbors. Uh, Christians in India scatter flowers on the, the ground throughout their sanctuary on Palm Sunday. In Syria... Pastors sprinkle water on their congregation as they walk through the church doors to remind them of their baptism. And in Latvia, I love this one, um, Christian parents wake their kids up on Palm Sunday by giving them a playful swat on the bottom with a palm branch. Time to get up for church. (laughs) Uh, Here at Glenkirk, our kids process through our worship services, waving palm branches while we sing Hosanna. And I hope that you will lean into all that Holy Week represents this week. Marlene mentioned Journey to the Cross. We have set up um, eight stations out on our courtyard area, and it will be open from sunrise to sunset throughout the week. And I encourage you either after the services or to come back with your small group or your family or friends sometime during the week and to do a self-guided tour through eight events in Jesus's life during Holy Week. And I hope you'll join us to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on Maundy Thursday um, this next week at 7 p.m. And, of course, I hope you'll invite your friends and your family to join you as we gather together next Sunday, Easter Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Today I want to talk about an event that actually happened the day after Palm Sunday, the Monday of Holy Week. And it's out of Mark chapter 11. And so, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as Jesus taught them, he said, "'Is it not written, "'My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, "'but you have made it a den of robbers?' The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed." At his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. You can be seated. This event takes place on the Monday of Holy Week. The day after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the way Mark tells the story here, Mark 11, Jesus turning the tables over in the temple and his cursing of the fig tree are like sandwiched together. These two events, the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus' action in the temple help explain each other. You see, the fig tree represents the temple. And the temple represents the people of God and its leaders of Jesus' generation. Despite all of their shouts of Hosanna and their waving of palm branches the day before, many of God's people and their leaders back then didn't really understand what Jesus stood for and what he came to accomplish. Let's consider the cursing of the fig tree first. The average fig tree in the Mediterranean world reaches between 10 and 20 feet in height. And in early spring, which is when this event took place at the beginning of the Jewish Passover, in early spring, fig trees are covered in large green leaves. But they don't actually grow edible fruit until late spring and early summer. So this is kind of an odd miracle. Jesus' other miracles are all healing and life-giving miracles, but this is a miracle of destruction. When we read of Jesus cursing the fig tree, it seems unreasonable to us that he would expect a fig tree to have figs when it wasn't yet the season for figs. Some people think Jesus was a little hangry here. You know what I mean? That, That irritability you get when you haven't eaten for a while. But to understand what's going on in this miracle, we need to understand that Jesus is using symbolism here. This leafy fig tree, lacking fruit, represents the condition of the temple. And what Jesus does to this fig tree explains the symbolism of what Jesus does in the temple. So let's consider what he does do in the temple. Now, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem played a very significant role in the life of the people of God back then. It was the focal point of Israel's spiritual life. It was their primary place that they would go to worship. It was where they would go to learn from the Bible, from the Torah, about what God expected of them from the teachers. Um, It was the place they went to experience forgiveness of their sins. Uh, According to Bible scholar N.T. Wright, the temple was believed to be a a kind of portal between our world and God's world, what, what later Celtic Christians would call thin space, where the 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 line between heaven and earth became thin and blurred. The, The very first Jewish temple was built in the 10th century before Christ by King Solomon. And that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So this is Israel's second temple built during the the times of Ezra and Nehemiah and then expanded and remodeled by Herod, the king that the Romans had placed over the people of Israel. Christians sometimes call this event the cleansing of the temple. And this assumes that Jesus is trying to reform the temple, to purify it so it can be used the way it was designed once again. But I'm not convinced that Jesus is trying to cleanse the temple here. Mark says that when Jesus goes into the temple, he sees those who are buying and selling, and he sees the money changers. Now the money changers exchanged currency from Roman money like the Roman denarius to Jewish temple money, which was the shekel back then. And once worshipers did their money exchange, they would pay their annual temple tax, which at this time was a half shekel for every person, and then they would be free to use shekels to purchase sacrificial animals to bring as an offering as part of the Passover celebration. The animal merchants were the ones buying and selling, and they were set up in the temple court right next to the money changers who would do the currency exchange. So perhaps Jesus is upset about the rate of exchange that the money changers are using. Or maybe Jesus is angry at the prices that the merchants are charging for sacrificial anim- animals. But N.T. But Wright suggests that Jesus' point here was not so much to protest something, as much it was to briefly stop the temple sacrifices from taking place in a symbolic action. You see, during the Passover, temple sacrifices were offered continually, one after another after another, because hundreds of thousands of people would converge upon Jerusalem for Passover. And in verse 16 of our reading, Mark says that Jesus prevented them from carrying merchandise through the temple courts, presumably these sacrificial animals, which would cause the sacrifices to cease, even for a brief period of time. Wright suggests that by causing the sacrifices to cease, Jesus is symbolizing that the time of the temple and the time of its sacrifices had come to an end. When Jesus dies on the cross as the final sacrifice for our sins, sacrifices become irrelevant. In fact, two chapters later, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus will predict that this temple will be destroyed by the Romans. Jesus is symbolizing that the temple's time has come to an end and that God's judgment has come upon it because it is like a fruitless fig tree. To make his point, Jesus quotes two prophecies from the Old Testament and applies them to his own day in verse 17. The the first quote is from the book of Isaiah 56-7, which says that God intended the temple to be a house of prayer for the nations. A house of prayer for the nations. God intended his temple to be a light to the world, a kind of magnet that would draw people from all the nations of the world to come and to worship the God of Israel. In fact, the temple even had a special place for people called the court of the Gentiles, a place within the temple that anyone could come regardless of their background or, or nationality. They could come to the court of the Gentiles to learn about the God of Israel. And it was in this very court, the court of the Gentiles, that the money changers and the merchants had set up shop. It was in this very place, the court of the Gentiles, that Jesus does this action. God intended the temple to be a light for all nations, a focal point that would draw people from every language and every people and every culture to come to know the God of Israel. But instead, this court was not being filled by non-Jewish people to learn about God. It was filled with money changers and merchants. God's people had forgotten why God called them to build that temple in the first place. God's people and their leaders had become an out-of-season fig tree, impressive from a distance, but up close lacking fruit. The second passage Jesus quotes in verse 17 is from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7 verse 11 That they have turned the temple into a den of robbers. Now, the old King James translates it den of thieves, but that isn't quite accurate. A robber is different than a thief. A A thief steals your car while you're asleep in your house, a robber uses force or violence to steal your car. The Greek word Jesus uses here, translated robber, always implies the use of violence and the use of force. In fact, this same word Jesus used here is used in the rest of the New Testament in the writings of Josephus to describe violent revolutionaries. And and a robber's den isn't the place where robbers rob people. The den is where robbers hide out. It's the lair that they lay low in in order to avoid the law. Jesus is saying here that the temple has lost its purpose as a place of prayer for all nations, and instead it is becoming a hiding place for robbers, for violence, a den of robbers. Now, just a couple of years after Jesus said this, violent revolutionaries in Israel would organize an armed rebellion against the Roman government that would last for four years. And during that war, these revolutionaries would hide out in this very temple. In fact, they would hide out in the most holy place, the place where the altar was, the place where the high priest would go to offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people. The most holy place of this temple would become a den of robbers, a hideout for violence. And this would go on until 70 AD when the Roman army would march into the city of Jerusalem, march into the temple, and kill all of these revolutionaries. And then the Roman army would destroy this temple brick by brick, just as Jesus predicts in Mark 13 that he would do, because it had withered from the roots. You see, Jesus' words and actions here are present, prevent, or predicting the temple's destruction, that its time was coming to an end. And like a fruitless fig tree that's all leaves but no fruit, the people of God and their leaders have become fruitless. You see, God's people become unfruitful when they forget God's mission. When the people of God lose sight of the reason God called them into existence in the first place, they become unfruitful. God's people back then had forgotten their mission to be a place of prayer for all nations, and instead they were turning their place of worship into a refuge for robbers. And this should serve as a warning for God's people in every generation, including our own to never lose sight of God's mission for His people. We become unfruitful when we lose our sense of God's mission. Now, what are the signs that we are still on mission with God? What fruit should we look for to ensure that we're remaining faithful and true to the mission that God has called us as His people today to? What should we look for to make sure that we're not just leaves that are impressive from a distance, but that there's fruit? I want to mention a couple of unreliable signs of fruit and then a couple reliable ones. Here are some unreliable signs. People building large movements is an unreliable sign that those people haven't lost sight of God's mission. In Jesus' day, the temple in Jerusalem was massive. Herod, the, the king that the Romans had put over the people of Israel, kept adding on and building it bigger and bigger and bigger. So much so that Jerusalem was more like a temple that happened to have a city around it than it was a city that happened to have a temple in it. Sitting on top of a hill, the temple was the focal point of the entire city. And during seasons like Passover, hundreds of thousands of people would travel to the city of Jerusalem to worship there. But despite its bigness, it had lost sight of God's mission. It was an unfruitful fig tree. We are easily impressed with big things today. We, we see something big and we assume that God must be in it. If a church or a ministry is getting larger, that must be a sign of God's blessing. But these last few years we've seen some very large churches and movements collapse. Whoever whether we've listened to podcasts about the rise and fall of a particular ministry or watched a a documentary on TV about a ministry's implosion, we are learning that bigness in and of itself is an unreliable sign that we're still on mission with God. Now, don't get me wrong, healthy things grow. And churches ought to be growing and reaching new people. But you know what? Unhealthy things grow too. Cancer grows. Bigness is an unreliable sign of being on mission. Acquiring political power is also an unreliable sign of fruit. The chief priests who ran the temple had unprecedented access to the halls of Roman power. They had a unique and special relationship with King Herod. And one reason the chief priests conspired to kill Jesus is because what he says and what he teaches and what he does is a threat to their power. When the people shouted Hosanna, as the video said, they were expecting a political king. You know, recently I've been rereading some of the writings of a guy named Chuck Colson. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may remember Colson as the founder of Prison Fellowship, one of the most effective prison ministries in the country and is the author of more than than 20 books. But before uh, Colson became a Christian, he was actually um, special counsel in the White House during the Nixon administration. In fact, his office in the White House shared a common wall with the Oval Office. And people called Colson the evil genius of the dark side of Nixon's administration. Colson was the first person to go to prison for obstruction of justice for his part in the Watergate scandal. And during that time, he came into a relationship with Jesus that transformed his life. And so in his book, <clears throat> God and Government, he confesses that he had become addicted to power. And before he died in 2012, Coulson said that he believed the greatest temptation of our age for the church was to try to usher in God's kingdom and God's work by means of political power. And he warned that, that throughout 2,000 years of church history, every time the church has tried to do this, it has lost its mission. It has forgotten who it is. It is good for us to want to be involved in our communities and to make a difference and make change. But political power alone is an unreliable sign that we are on mission with God. Finally, the last unreliable sign, a lot of money, having a lot of money is an unreliable sign of fruit. The Jewish historian Josephus said that after Herod remodeled the temple in Jerusalem, that he used so much gold in the remodel that when the sun shined on the temple, you couldn't look at it because of the glare. The Jewish writer Philo said the temple was the wealthiest institution in the entire Greco-Roman world. Yet for all its wealth, the temple had lost its way. It had become barren and unfruitful. So, what are some reliable signs that God's people are bearing fruit and on mission with God? And let me mention a couple. One reliable sign is that people are encountering God, people are encountering God. They're not just talking about God, debating God, defending the idea of God, discussing God, studying God, but they're actually encountering the living God. The temple, with all of its liturgies and rituals, with its sacrifices and teaching, was designed for the people of God to encounter God. And it's good to ask ourselves, are people encountering God among us? Not, not just are people impressed with Glenkirk or do they like our ministry or feel good about things, but are people actually experiencing the God we talk about? I ask that question all the time. I I thought about it when we had our healing prayer service this last week, and we prayed for about 45 or 50 people who are experiencing pain in their lives and in need of healing, our pastors and and lay pastors and elders. And my prayer that night wasn't wasn't merely that people would feel supported and cared for, although I do want them to feel supported and cared for, but my prayer is that God would show up and that He would actually work healing in people's lives. And he did in some of those people. People encountering God among us is a reliable sign that we're on mission. Another indicator is that people are being welcomed. People are being welcomed. The the people of Israel of Jesus' day had lost their mission when they began to see non-Israelite people as enemies instead of their mission field. They lost their way when they began to be consumed with defeating the Romans instead of being the light of God to the Romans. And even though the temple had a court for Gentiles, what Gentile would dare enter into that court if everybody else there viewed them as their enemy? No wonder it was just an empty space for the money changers and the merchants to set up shop. Are we welcoming people? I think at our best we are. But I wonder, where do we still have room to grow in being a welcoming community? Who are the people that are hard for us to welcome? The people of God know that they're on mission when they are growing in their capacity to welcome others. A third indicator is that people are being transformed. A reliable sign of fruit is that people are being transformed. When people encounter the living God, they can't stay the same. Are people moving from unbelief into faith, from anger into mercy, from resentment into forgiveness? Are people moving from promiscuity into purity, from hatred into love, from despair into hope? Are people finding freedom from addictions? Are they seeking to rebuild broken relationships? Are they seeking God for guidance in their decisions in their lives? Are people growing in generosity? Are they learning how to cultivate intimacy with God? Are people's lives being changed? Are our lives continually being changed? This is a sure sign, a fruit that we're on mission with God. Finally, a fourth and final indicator is that people are loving and being loved. They're loving others and they're being loved. Jesus said the world would know that that we are his disciples by the love that we have. Are we becoming people who love? Where our circle of love is ever growing, not just for our friends and our family and our kids, before for our neighbors, for our community, for our enemies, Jesus talked about. And are we experiencing love from each other D- despite our imperfections and our dysfunctions? Are we learning how to love one another? Well, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing or, or event in the temple is a cautionary tale for God's people of every generation because any generation can lose their way in knowing God's mission for them. And when we do, we become unfruitful, like fig trees that are all leaves and no figs. And though we may be big, we may be connected, we may have resources, if we don't have real genuine fruit, we risk losing the blessing of God. And so as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, may we renew our commitment to be on mission with God. May we be a worshiping community where people are not just learning about God, but they're encountering God. May we renew our commitment to be a community that welcomes people, to be a community where everyone, including us, no matter how long we've been Christians and been attending Glen Kirk, everyone is experiencing spiritual transformation and growth. May we be a place where we are learning to love, and to love others because this is the fruit that demonstrates we understand Jesus and that we're on mission with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you on this Palm Sunday as we enter into this holy week where Jesus suffered, was betrayed, was rejected, was beaten, And was killed. That as we celebrate and reflect on this holy week where Jesus paid the price to purchase for you a people who would embody your goodness, your justice, your gospel, may the price that was paid cause us to renew our commitment to be faithful to what you've called us to be. Thank you, God, that you are a good and merciful God. And that although no one is perfect in any of these areas, that you will cause this fruit to grow if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and our faith in him. May this fruit grow, and may it blossom, and may it nurture others and bring you glory. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.